0: flushcarecom slash loss.
1: Listeners should refer to the disclaimer in the episode notes and at the end of this podcast.
2: Because if you look at Big River, if you look at Cog, and you look at Move, and even Maxi Parts, because I mean, a lot of these boomers who created some fantastic industrial businesses, but they have simply no exit plan either because they're too small. So we just took that thesis and applied it to our private opportunities fund, whereby you know there are a lot of fantastic people out there who either require capital to expand their business or they're looking for an exit altogether. And there are some fantastic businesses out there. G'day
1: and welcome back to Equity ASA, brought to you by the Australian Shareholders Association. I'm Phil Muscatello. My guest today is Sebastian Evans, Chief Investment Officer and Managing Director at NAOS Asset Management. G'day, Sebastian. Hi, how are you, Phil? NAOS Asset Management invests in emerging companies which are hopefully the leaders of tomorrow. Let's have a little bit of a look at NAOS. How many companies are you invested in?
2: So we run, we have about three portfolios, but if you looked at the unique investments across the group, that only be about 14. So we have about $300 million, but only have 14 investments. So, which would be, you would consider that very, very concentrated.
1: It's an incredibly concentrated portfolio, isn't it?
2: Yeah, no, it is. Yeah. But we, Look, I think we we prefer it that way because we're quite reasonably hands-on, big believers in quality over quantity. You know, it's it's got its drawbacks sometimes, especially when you've got an equity benchmark because obviously our our portfolios bear absolutely zero resemblance to an equity benchmark. So, the small ordinaries, for example, we don't have one stock in the small odds, but that's our benchmark. So... You know last month, I think um, as I was telling my board, I think I had my worst month ever in 16 years in a relative sense, but that comes with the territory. We think over the long term, relative performance is really irrelevant in an absolute basis. We, we do we think we do very well over the long term, and hence why we prefer to own a small number of businesses, know them very intimately, uh, their management teams and their structure and the industry backdrop, and really want to let our capital compound over, over many, many years as opposed to trading. More liquid businesses.
1: So you've got quite a unique process for identifying these kind of companies, and it's a high bar that they've got to reach before you'll invest in them.
2: Yeah, it's you know I think our look without a doubt our biggest weakness is we're we're always too early. So most of the businesses we're in, if you look at our biggest holdings, Big River, Move Logistics, um, Cog Financial Services, Maxi Parts, we'd be one of either the only institutional investor or one of maybe three. So. We're generally very early. I so suppose we like to take make an early investment to build a very large investment position and then let that compound over time. And, you know, for us, it's really about if we're taking that sort of approach, it's really it comes down to I'm sure a lot of fund managers talk about it, you know, the competitive mode of a business. But for us, it's things like, you know, just the industry structure is it conducive of long-term growth. Um, the management team is probably the most important one by a country mile uh, because, unfortunately, you're only really investing in, you know, two or three different people. And, you know, if those people can't perform, then ultimately your investment probably pr- doesn't turn out the way you expect it to be. Put that in context, like... At our roadshow, we've been saying we, we made a new investment recently in a business called Gentrack. It's about 12 months old. They've got a new CEO who ran a, a business on the NASDAQ. We, through just tracking these people down on LinkedIn and other places, did about 12 different reference checks of the people that he's worked with um, over, over his journey to sort of give you an idea of sort of, I suppose, the the nitty-gritty we want to go into before we make quite a large investment decision.
1: So part of the way that you research businesses is to find references for the management team from as many sources as possible. Tell us a bit more about that process.
2: Yeah. So, you know, most of our said, most of our businesses, they're, you know, probably valued anywhere between $80 million and $200 million. And, you know, they are small businesses like the business I run here. And hence, you're really only investing with two or three people, the CEO, the CFO, general manager. And so, hence, you know, I'm a big believer that a lot of ASX CEOs are great at giving you a glossy PowerPoint presentation and telling you everything that's fantastic. You know, the, the joke in the office, it's not really a joke anymore, is because we've, ac- we've actually got one of my executives now is on four board seats. So, we're actually now on the boards of businesses. So, we get to understand these businesses in a relative uh, amount of detail. And we always say to our investors, if you actually knew what was going on in some of these businesses, especially small ones, you probably would never invest in the first place. And and that's why people is so important. Um, So talking to references, so people who've worked with former CEOs, how do they perform? How do they manage a culture? Are they transparent? Uh, Are they predictable? Um, are they objective do they own up to mistakes things like that we're never looking for anyone that's perfect because we don't believe that exists but just you know people who are obviously work hard who are aligned um, who can deliver bad information who can own up to it and deliver on a strategy and take a very long-term view um, and take a very measured approach
1: so what are the other metrics that you analyze businesses on
2: yeah we look to be honest a lot of people think it's um quite technical i think we take the opposite approach that we really want to keep it quite simple. We're big believers that you know the simplest businesses turn out to be the best over the time. So for us, it's just some very basic metrics. So as I said, industry structure is a big one. You know, big believer if if you're in um, an environment where the tide is rising, then hopefully over time, if you're doing your job correctly, you should rise at the same pace as that tide, or hopefully even further. So that's a big one, understanding that industry structure over the longer term, and then from there, it's really getting into the quantitative analysis of a business. So. It's really about free cash flow. So can the business generate cash, which, you know, wasn't in vogue for a long time, seems to be a lot more in vogue these days. How much cash can they generate? Can they reinvest back into their business and can they continue to grow their competitive advantage over time? Um, you know, that's a really big one. And then, you know, a lot of balance sheet analysis. We like, to, we like to think anyway that we want to focus on capital preservation. And, you know, I, I went through the GFC a while ago now. And for me, capital preservation was all about, you know, obviously that balance sheet structure and, and not having a permanent capital loss event because that's that can really be uh, extremely detrimental to your performance. And from there, really just trying to understand what the long-term opportunity for business is because as many of your listeners would know, a lot of small businesses, if they can obviously grow their earnings at, at, a, at a fair rate, it's actually not the earnings growth where you make your money. It's the multiple expansion. It's what someone's willing to pay for that business in five years' time as opposed to now. So I always use the analogy, if you've got a business that makes a dollar, it's probably going to be valued at 10 times, so it's worth $10. If they can turn that dollar into $5 in five years' time, it's a bigger business, it's got more customers, it's got a national presence, someone's probably going to pay 15 times for that business. So you make most of your money, your capital growth, on the multiple, so what someone's willing to pay for that business as opposed to just for the pure earnings growth. So trying to understand what that business could be worth in the future is obviously very important to us.
1: So, this end of the market is often seen to be the high-tech end of the market, and yeah. but these are not the kind of businesses that you're investing in.
2: Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, we're the complete opposite for that. Um, so, you know, we own 37% of a business called Big River Industries, 108 years old, founded our, in our Grafton in northern New South Wales. They distribute building materials you know hardly um.
1: Gee, you can't get any more real than that
2: yeah yeah family business the family over time because over 108 years the family expanded so too many family members and naturally all the uh, all the kids wanted some money so they sold out and listed the business but yeah literally just distributes building materials so what reese has done in plumbing they're looking to do in building materials you know we built up another position in maxi parts they distribute truck parts probably as unsexy as you can get. And then, you know, what are the, Saunders International, they build, literally, they build fuel tanks, fuel storage tanks. You know, so for us, it's really just about, just because it's not technology, we do own some technology businesses, but some of these businesses, they operate in very niche spaces where they've really got a huge opportunity to grow. Like if you look at Big River, no one is competing with Big River. Maybe Metcash through Mitre 10, that'd be maybe one. Bunnings doesn't because they do retail. The same for for Maxi Parts. They really only have one other competitor, which is Babcor, big listed business, and they've, they've probably got their own issues. Saunders, they they are the dominant player in that market, um, and that's what we find. We find there's some fantastic little businesses that really dominate their respective markets, run by some fantastic people who are completely unheard of, salt of the earth people. And then over time, they just find they get themselves into new markets, build a re- fantastic reputation, and can really scale these you know, these very unique businesses.
1: You've used Reese Plumbing as an analogue for the Big River business. Yeah. Tell us about the similarities and what you see as a possible growth path for the future.
2: Yeah, I mean, probably speaking out of school because obviously Reese has been such a fantastic business. But, you know, I remember when I started 16 years ago, Reese was always a business was family-owned. Obviously, you would know Reece, it was family-owned by the Wilson family in Melbourne. People forget, you know, Reese started with three or four plumbing stores today I got my analysts to do it the other day, but I think from memory, don't quote me, I think it's about 400 stores now in Australia. Obviously, they bought that US business. I think they've got 300 stores. So it's a 700-store business now. I mean, multi-billion dollar. I think it's valued at 4 or $5 billion. But the core of what Reese does is plumbing supplies. And if you go to their website and try to understand what they're all about, it's providing high-quality plumbing supplies, being in locations that is key for their customers so close to being close to their customers and providing a fantastic customer experience it's simple and for 25 or 30 years they never deviated from that and they've created obviously a fantastic business big river is trying to do exactly the same for building materials so everyone thinks of Boral and csr and james hardy's but if you look at all those businesses what they do is they create the building materials no one actually distributes them so they obviously they distribute through the likes of Bunnings if you want to go to retail. But if the analogy that I use is if you think of a lot of the subbies and the contractors who build office towers or shopping centres, hospitals, where do they get their trades from? Like where do they you know, where do they get the concrete? Where do they get the where do they get the woodwork that they need? The building materials they've got to go to a supplier who's got the scale, who's got the network, and who's got the working capital to provide them those supplies in scale. And that's exactly what Big River is trying to do. So they went from, they've gone from 11 sites now to 20 sites in over the past five years and obviously looking to, to double again. We haven't covered
1: move logistics yet, yeah. but tell us a little bit about that company.
2: Yeah, a, a bit, probably slightly different for us from our usual investment, but I'll start with another. So I've used Reese as one analogy. So I'll use another fantastic business as an, an analogy. So hopefully these two come off over the longer term. Um, but I'm sure many of you listeners have heard of a business called Main Freight in New Zealand. Probably the most successful Kiwi business of all time, probably a big call, but probably not far away between that and zero. Main Freight, for you, your listeners, if they don't know, is about, I think it's like a 10 or $15 billion Kiwi business. There's a book on it called The Main Freight, I think, what's it called? The Main Freight Way, ready, I think it's Ready Aim Fire. Within that book, there are a few executives who were very high up in the chain And they got into a business called Move Logistics about 18 months ago. So, Move Logistics was a, again, it's been around for about 80 years, was an amalgamation of a number of logistics businesses in New Zealand. They listed, it was a failed listing, had ran into a few issues, standard sort of business whereby not enough money has been reinvested and sort of fell apart. So, a gentleman called Chris Dunphy came in, bought some shares himself, went on the board, changed a lot of the board. And now he's brought with him 12 executives that we can find anyway uh, that come from the likes of Lynn Fox and Main Freight. And he's really putting a team in place together to what we believe, and he may not agree with this, but essentially to compete with the likes of Main Freight. Um, So Main Freight has over 50% of the New Zealand logistics market. So if you go through that book, The Main Freight Way, so Chris was actually offered the job of CEO of Main Freight about 15 years ago and turned it down. And now he's come here to really put the the band back together we think and create something quite unique so it's different for us in the fact that it is a turnaround we do like the fact that it is a turnaround because it's a turnaround of scale so it's a big business already but doesn't make any money and so chris and his team are really trying to focus on the simple things to turn that i think it's 300 odd million dollars of revenue and try and get an adequate profit before i think they will do some quite unique and large things because as Chris says, if you go through the log- logistics space in Australia, for example, there are some fantastic businesses that you and I could rattle off founded by baby boomers who have absolutely no succession plan because the kids don't want to run mum and dad's trucking business or, or whatever it may be. Private equity don't want to get involved because it's too hard and you really need to have some industry understanding. And so he thinks there'll be a lot of consolidation over the next five five or 10 years of some very, very good businesses.
1: And that's the kind of thinking behind your private equity fund, that there's many great baby boomer businesses that the family and succeeding generations don't want to take on.
2: Yeah, it is. I mean, and and a lot of that applies. I mean, to be fair, we probably stole the, the idea from a lot of our listed counterparts. Because mm. if you look at Big River, if you look at COG and you look at Move and even Maxi Parts, a lot of their M&A strategy is focused on that boomer segment because, I mean, a lot of these boomers who created some fantastic industrial businesses, but they have simply no exit plan either because they're too small, because they operate in an industry where there's no real corporate hoovering them up. So, we just took that thesis and applied it to our private opportunities fund whereby, you know, there are a lot of fantastic people out there who either require capital to expand their business or they're looking for an exit altogether. And there are some fantastic businesses out there. And what we're also finding is a lot of these fantastic businesses don't want to list because of all the the issues with running a listed business, as we've seen probably more lately. So for us, we just think it's a it's a um, it's a huge opportunity for us. It's something that our investors have wanted, but at the same time, we're taking quite a measured approach because we appreciate you know investing in private businesses has, has its challenges as well.
1: So this private equity fund is separate to the LICs, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it it is separate. But as I said in um my roadshow, we. We have put two private investments in, into our NCC lick, just because we're looking to diversify that lick, separate it out from the other two licks that we run, and just because we think it's it, you know the opportunity set is just huge, and these two particular investments were quite sizable, and then we felt it, it fell within the investment framework of what we're trying to do for NCC. So they're only small investments, but hopefully over time we can, we can build that out across one or one or two of the licks. Uh, but we, we're going to take our time.
1: So, what kind of sectors can investors be missing out on if they're not looking at this end of the market?
2: I always say it's it's really just more of a, like, I think definitely you're missing out on some sectors, but for me, it's more of a, a pure exposure thing. Obviously, as businesses get larger, if you, if you look at, say, Wesfarmers, for example, it's, it's a conglomerate now, but originally started off as something different. But if you wanted just a pure exposure to hardware, you can't get that through Wesfarmers anymore. So from my perspective, you're really just trying to get a pure exposure to certain specific industries. So, you know, if you look at maxi parts, you're getting a pure exposure to truck parts and everyone says, well, why do you want a pure exposure to truck parts? It's like, well, we're using trucks more than ever because everyone wants their device or internet shopping today, not in four weeks' time, so therefore you need more trucks. You can't get a new truck for two years because of the waiting list and so therefore there's demand on parts. But you couldn't, if, if you wanted to get that same exposure in Babcoor, as I said, which is a top 100 business, they do car parts and truck parts as a much smaller part. So what we try to say is you can get a you can get an exposure, but by the time you work your way through the P and L and what the rest of that larger business does, you are getting a much smaller pure exposure. So you know a lot of our investors are after a pure exposure to a certain industry. It might be finance broking might be medical devices. Um, as I said, it might be building materials or even contracting in the case of Saunders. So it's just about more of that pure, more niche exposure as, a, as opposed to having a more conglomerate sort of view of the world. So
1: tell us about the three LICs. And I know in the past, you've mentioned that in hindsight, you would have preferred two LICs, but uh, you're stuck with three now.
2: Stuck with three. Yeah, yeah. No, it's... um. Yeah, so we've got three. We started with one obviously 10 years, 10 years in February. So NCC, NCC does our what we consider our micro cap. For anyone else, I would consider that nano cap. So they're the smallest companies on the ASX. Probably the average size of each investment, so the average market value is about $100 million. NSC is our small cap offering. So I think the average size of the businesses there is about $180 million. And then NAC is our sort of slightly larger version is about $250 million. So, in effect, they all they all focus on emerging companies. They're just slightly different sizes. So, from very small to not so small to small is the way I would put it. And there are some cross-investments in each. But really, the only thing that differentiates them all is the size of the investment. Um, but the philosophy, the type of businesses we look for is completely identical. They're all concentrated. They're all industrial-type businesses. They're all very long-term. So, we've owned some investments now for probably eight or nine years now. So we're not traders, you know, we tend to compound our capital hopefully over the long term. Uh, so they all they all are quite similar. It's just the size of the investments. And you're very hands-on with these companies as well, aren't you? Yeah. So often we we are the largest shareholder. We own anywhere between 20% and 38% of some businesses. So, so by far and away, the largest investor. In some cases, we'll look to put an independent director on that we believe... Oh, it's a different skill set uh, if we can't find an adequate independent director we'll put on our own director um, so we'll become a, an executive or non-independent director the reason being because we are such large investors we just for we, we feel it's the best way we can add value for our shareholders it's all about adding value for our shareholders and ensuring we get maximum performance over the longer term and we have felt through experience the best way to do that is to sort of to be in the nitty-gritty and really have your say on the longer term strategy because it, it does um, frustrate me, I suppose, how you know, there's, there's a lot of boards out there. You know, the classic example, I think, is you looked at the board of Perpetual. I don't know if you've been following the... I think someone made the comment the other day, I think there's eight directors, and I think their combined value of their shareholdings about $200,000 <laughs> for a market capitalization of you know, however many billions of dollars. Mm. Um, so for us, you know, directors represent shareholders. So if you're a large shareholder, then you should be rep- be represented on the board and and have a say in the long-term um, strategy of a business um, so that, that's the view we take and, and so far to be I would say for those businesses it has worked better than probably we originally intended so it's something we'll, we'll look to to expand upon. So what are the tickers of the LICs? So yeah they're all quite similar so NCC NSC and NAC so.
1: So where can listeners go to find out more about the LICs?
2: The best way to find information on each of the LICs I would say is either so go to the ASX and, and download a month-end report that gives you so gives you a full history of all of our dividends over the last 10 years, what's been franked, how you can invest in the licks, so how you can buy them on the ASX, the type of companies we're in. We give you a breakdown of every month's performance. So we are quite detailed on all the information we give our shareholders. The only thing we don't give is a full list of the investments. But as I tell most people, if you read three months' worth of month-end reports, you're probably going to work it out pretty quickly anyway. Otherwise, jump on our website, which is naos.com.au, and there's a plethora of information about what we do and how we do it. And we'll put
1: links in the episode notes so that listeners can find out more and watch your current roadshow.
2: Yeah, exactly. It was good to finally do a face-to-face after three years. It's been three years. It's good to um, do a face-to-face roadshow for once, actually um not another webinar so yeah we we do a national roadshow once a year we do quarterly webinars and we obviously do monthly investment reports i talk to anyone and everyone who calls up so we like to be as transparent as, as we possibly can and as i say to all my shareholders all of my investable funds are in the lick i don't i don't own one share outside of the lick so we're all very heavily aligned with all of our shareholders so as um some people like to remind me like as I said last month we didn't we probably had our worst month in a long time I'm hurting just as much as everyone else so I don't think that's important it's the way it should be Um, so we're completely focused on the long-term objective and if that succeeds uh, then we'll be as happy as everyone else uh, and, and go along for the ride as well
1: and you presented at the ASA's virtual investor summit and that's available for members at the moment Uh, on the ASA website and it will be available for purchase by non-members if you're listening to this after December 1st. And Sebastian's presentation will be available there as well. Sebastian Evans from NAOS, thank you very much for coming on.
2: No, thank you. Have a great week. This
1: podcast is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice as we don't know your personal financial situation, so you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances, or current situation.